right, you guys can grab a seat. Man, thank you for being here tonight on this very cold November day. Appreciate you guys coming to worship. It's always a highlight of my week to be with you guys on Monday nights. And so uh, tonight we are actually wrapping up a series called No Hard Feelings. And so if you haven't been with us, what we've been doing in this series is we've been going through the book of Psalms. We'll be in Psalm 88 today if you want to open up there. Um, Psalm 88. And so we've been going through the book of Psalms and really looking at the different hard feelings that we face, the negative emotions that we go through in our lives. Emotions like fear, like discouragement, and like confusion. And the purpose of going through the Psalms and looking at these songs that these people are writing to God is oftentimes we have this idea that we have to separate these hard feelings and our worship to God. And we feel like we have to worship in spite of those feelings. And what we've been talking about in this series is we actually worship God in light of those feelings. And so through the hard feelings, through these negative emotions in our lives, we can worship God, which means we can give him praise and sing to him even when things are going on in our lives that are difficult and hard and challenging and things like that. And so tonight we are wrapping up this series looking at a doozy as we talk about how we can worship God through disgust. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if there's any, anybody in the world who's ever done a sermon on this, so... Uh, probably has, but I haven't heard one. But no, I'm real excited about tonight as we talk about disgust. And ironically, uh, one of the most dis- disgusting moments that I've experienced recently in my life happened this semester on a Monday night right before I came up on this stage at Engage. So each week, our awesome band, let's, first of all, let's just give it up for our band, right? I mean, I promise you, I promise you, this is not an exaggeration. We have one of the best college worship bands in the nation right here in Jacksonville. And so each, each week after they get done practicing, um, about 7 o'clock, they go over to our green room and they have dinner together. So they hang out in our green room. They have dinner together. We have awesome volunteers who bring that to them. And so um, about a month or so ago, I go over there to hang out with them when they're in this green room uh, just to kind of talk about the night, kind of see how things are going. And somebody has this game here. Now, if you don't know what this game is, it's called Bean Boozled. And let me explain, explain what this is, okay? So these are jelly beans from Jelly Belly. And so in this container, is full of them. Now, some of the flavors in here are, are great flavors, right? Typical flavors that you'd expect to have when you eat a jelly bean, right? Flavors like strawberry banana smoothie, right? Chocolate pudding, peach, juicy pear, right? That sounds good. Um, caramel corn, right? Stuff like that, right? Stuff that is good that you would enjoy eating. But also in this container are some pretty nasty flavors. And when I mean nasty, I mean flavors like barf, right? Flavors like dead fish, like stinky socks. I don't even know how you even know what that flavor is. And I don't know if I want to ask. Um, rotten egg. Moldy cheese, and here's my favorite, booger, right? Because we all want to go back to when we were kids and eat those, because clearly that was not a mature step when we stopped doing that. And so, and this is what makes this game so crazy, is that the good flavors and the nasty flavors, the jelly bean looks exactly the same. So you don't know the difference between peach and barf. You don't know the difference between banana, strawberry banana smoothie and dead fish. And you don't know the difference between caramel corn and moldy cheese. And so the whole point of this game is to open this up and to take it and to eat it 
and to play it. And so what I want to know is who was the psychopath that came up with this, right? I mean, this is like Russian roulette, but worse. Like, that's what we're dealing with here. And so, to my defense, I had no idea how this game worked, right? Somebody had this container, and they said, hey, Jesse, do you want to try a jelly bean? And so what I'm thinking in my naive self is, oh, yeah, Jelly Belly does crazy flavors like root beer and popcorn, which is actually one of the good flavors in here. And so I'm like, yeah, sure. Well, actually, I didn't say that at first. At first, I was pretty hesitant towards doing it. I was like, no, I'm good. I don't really want to do it. And then the peer pressure started. Because this awesome band, who clearly has great love and respect for their fearless leader as the college pastor, only had my best interest in mind when they start telling me that I need to eat one of these jelly beans. And because I am a man of the people, I decide to eat one of these jelly beans, right? So the guy turns it, and three flavors pop up. And I see the white one, and I'm thinking, okay, that's a safe bet, right? Maybe it's coconut right at worst. It's popcorn, right? I'm, I'm pretty safe by grabbing this white one. And so I grab it, and without thinking, I just throw it in my mouth. And very quickly, I realized it was not coconut. It was not popcorn. But I wasn't too sure what it was. And so the person looked at the back of this and started reading off the possible flavors. And when they said it, I knew exactly what it was. I'd gotten spoiled milk. Obviously, that is not a flavor that I would have approved of on my own. And what was so disturbing about it is how dead on it tasted. Like, that, I mean, that is weird and crazy. And so after that, my goal was to try to get this flavor out of my mouth because I didn't want to stand up on this stage as if I had spoiled milk just there to taste as I'm talking to you guys, right? And maybe even have the spoiled milk breath, but we don't want to go there. So clearly... It probably goes without saying, when I was in that situation and I ate that jelly bean, it was absolutely disgusting. I mean, definitely regret that decision. But we also understand this reality that jelly beans aren't the only thing that is disgusting to us, right? In fact, I would argue that most of the things that we find to be disgusting are much more intense and are much more serious than jelly beans that you eat playing a game with your friends before engage. Don't you imagine that you meet somebody at the beginning of a semester in one of your classes and you instantly have this great connection and this great friendship with? Because as some people say, this person is totes legit, right? Or as I say, they're too legit to quit. But people say, don't, people tell me that nobody says that anymore. So we'll go with totes legit, right? So this person is awesome, right? This person that you meet in this class and the reason you think they're so awesome is because you guys just instantly hit it off. I mean, this person is hilarious, right? Like you're hanging out with them and you always are laughing out loud, having an awesome time. I mean, this person that you hang out with is so easy to talk to. I mean, you can spend hours talking to them and literally it feels like you've been with them for 20 minutes. They're genuine. I mean, there's somebody who you can be real with because they've been real with you and you never have to worry about them judging you. And most importantly, this person never asks you to play that game. <laughs> Biggest characteristic of why they're so cool. And so this is the type of person who, and we all know what this feels like, right? You, when you know somebody for like a month, but it feels like you've known them your entire life, right? And we all understand those type of friendships. And that's what this person is, right? You meet them, you hang out with them, and you have this instant connection with them. 
And so one day you're in this class and the professor gives you guys a test and it absolutely kicks y'all's butt. I mean, every single person in the class fails and the professor refuses to curve it. And so, of course, you get the test grade back and you're frustrated because you don't like failing a test and, and you're kind of down yourself on that. But when you look over at your friend, you notice that they look a lot more concerned than you do. In fact, they really borderline look at even scared. And so you kind of ask them if everything's all right. And they don't say anything. They just sit there looking at this paper, shaking their head as they just stare at it. And so you try to make him feel better by saying, look, everybody failed the class. I mean, failed the test. This is the professor's fault. Don't worry about it. It's fine. It's not a big deal. But it doesn't seem to really work. So the whole class period, they just have just this worried look on their face. Like something is just seriously wrong. And so you just assume that this person is concerned that they might not get an A in the class anymore because they've been dominating it. So you don't really think much more about it when you leave that day. But then two days later, when you go back to the class, you notice your friend's not there. And then right as the professor gets there and starts to teach, they kind of slip in and sits to the side. And it's weird because they're wearing a hat. You've never seen them wear a hat before. And so the class ends and, and they kind of leave quickly. And so you kind of run and catch up with them and kind of say, hey, what's going on? Like, like what's, what's the deal? And you notice as you turn to them that on the left side of their head, they have this redness and this bruising right below where the cap is. And so you, you kind of ask them what that is, and they kind of pull their hat down and shamefully kind of just look to the ground. And so you press them and say, like, what's going on here? And so they open up and they tell you that their dad found out what they made on that test. And he completely freaked out. He started screaming at them and telling them that if they don't get their act together, they're going to lose that scholarship and they're going to become a disgrace to the family. And they tell you that they told their dad that they were sorry and they apologized and they promised that it wouldn't happen again, that they would try harder and that it wouldn't happen again. But the dad didn't listen. Instead, he just got up in their face and he said to them, if my words aren't getting through this thick skull of yours, then maybe something else will. And fighting back tears, your friend takes off their hat and you see a big fist-sized bruise on the side of their face. And you know exactly what happened. And so in this moment, you're just kind of in complete disbelief. I mean, you're just trying to take in what you've just heard and what you're seeing. And as all of this is happening, all of a sudden, you see somebody walking behind your friend. And he puts his hand on your friend's shoulder. And with a big smile on his face, he says, hey, kiddo. Ready to grab lunch? Man, in that moment, as you were looking at your friend's dad, you would be absolutely disgusted at him. I mean, it would take every ounce of you not to say something or do something because you know what he did to his kid is completely inexcusable. 
And you'd be disgusted because you would extremely disapprove of what this dad has done to their child. Not only his action, but also his attitude as he's sitting there pretending like nothing has happened. And so what we see is that these two contrasting opposite stories show us what disgust is. They give us this broad understanding of disgust, these two polar opposite stories, and it's that disgust is extreme disapproval. That's the definition, that's the understanding that we're working with tonight, is that disgust is extreme disapproval. Because in both of these stories, that's what we see. Right, in the comical story about me eating the jelly bean, right, I had an extreme disapproval over what I was eating, right? That's why it was disgusting to me. But also in this story about the dad who's abusive to their kid, we also have an extreme disapproval of what's happening there as well. And so this is what we're working with. This is the idea of disgust. This kind of broad definition helps us to understand what disgust is when we walk through this passage together today. And obviously, with this being such a broad definition, we can really be disgusted at so many things, can't we? But tonight, I want to talk about one thing, or specifically one person, that we can find ourselves disgusted towards. And that person is God. Because even though no Christian wants to be disgusted at God, And even though we would rarely even want to talk about it if we were, the reality is there are times in our lives that we find ourselves disgusted at God. We find ourselves in situations where either something is happening to us or something is happening to somebody else. And we extremely disapprove of what God is doing in that situation. And I'm going to be honest with you guys, I think this is the toughest of the hard feelings that we've talked about this semester. Obviously, this is going to be a little bit of a heavier night, as you can probably already tell. But I'll be honest with you guys, it is tough for me to stand up here and talk to you guys and use the word disgust and the word God in the same sentence. Because as Christians, we know we aren't supposed to feel this way. We know that we shouldn't feel disgust towards God, but the reality is we do. This is how we feel. And if we find ourselves feeling like this in situations in our lives, then it's important that we talk about it. And there's no shame here because so many of these hard feelings that we've talked about, like fear and discouragement and confusion, right? Oftentimes when these hard feelings come, we can't control that. Right, something just happens in our lives, we see something, we experience something, and then that emotion comes. And so oftentimes we can't control when we feel these, but we can control what we do once we do feel them. And that's what we've been doing this entire series. And that's what we're going to continue to do tonight. It's what do we do when we find ourselves disgusted at God, and how can we even worship Him through the midst of that situation? And so to do that, we're going to be in Psalm 88. And Psalm 88 is actually written by somebody named Heman. And I can literally not think of a more masculine name than Heman because it's literally he and man, right? And so this guy is writing to God. And as he does, 
he doesn't approve of the situation that he's in. In fact, as he is writing to God, he believes that everything that is happening in his life is completely God's fault. And so let's read Psalm 88 together and see what we can learn. So let's begin in verse 6 together. So he writes, the you here, he's referring to God. He says, you have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all of your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I'm confined and I can't escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. And so as Heman is writing this psalm to God, he is just laying it out there, isn't he? I mean, he is not holding back any punches. And he clearly has an extreme disapproval towards God because of what's happening in his life, isn't he? And so often, you know, we look at these psalms and it's really hard for us to connect with them, isn't it? Because we don't know him. We don't know who Heman is. And he lived thousands of years ago. And so because of that, we can often find ourselves really connecting with the psalm. So what I want us to do tonight is I want us to pretend like your friend that we talked about earlier is the one writing the psalm. That person who is totes legit, right? That person that you care about deeply in your life. And I want us to read the psalm through that perspective. And so what that means is that your friend here that God has been doing something and putting them in a situation that they don't like. For your friend, God's anger is pouring out on them and they are overwhelmed by it so much that they feel like they are drowning in it, drowning in God's wrath. Your friend has had all of the people that are close to them taken away, right? The closest friends have been taken away. So not only are they lonely now, But the people who they care about the most, the people who they used to laugh with and talk to and share memories with, now find them absolutely repulsive. And your friend is in a situation where they feel like they are being tortured in a sense because they don't want to be in the situation and they're crying out to God and nothing is happening. And so they're trapped. They feel like that they are a prisoner in their own life. And this person is so scared that they feel like that they are going to be killed by God. They are so scared that God is going to take their life that they actually use praising God as a bargaining chip so that God won't do it. Because that's exactly what we see starting in verse 9. Excuse me, verse 10. It says, do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Are your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? What this person is saying is, look, God, if you kill me, I can't praise you here on earth. God, if you take my life, I can't tell of the goodness and the faithfulness and the love that you give to us. 
God, if you remove me from this place, then I can't tell people about the awesome deeds that you have done. And so what's absolutely amazing about this is if your friend's heart is willing to worship God and praise him, even though they think that God's going to kill them. That's the kind of heart we're dealing with here. That's the kind of person that we're talking about here. That even though they feel like God's wrath is on them, they are still willing to worship God. And as they continue to write, man, they just want to know why this is happening. They just want to know why this is taking place. And we see this starting with verse 13. It says, but I cry to you for help. Lord, in the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face forever? So even though this person is seeking God, even though this person is willing to pray to God, they feel like God doesn't even care. And that God just wants to bully them and cause them to have this pain in their life, even though they're trying to avoid it and they're trying to get rid of it. And so when we understand this psalm from this perspective, from the perspective of somebody that we care about, we really start to see what's happening here. Because I believe if we are with Heman as he is writing the psalm and he was one of our closest friends, then we could easily become disgusted at God because of what's happening here. Because what it looks like is that God is hurting somebody who is helpless. It looks like God is bringing pain to somebody's life and they just want to get rid of it, right? They just want to praise God. They just want it to be over. They're trying to do what is right. But they're defenseless. And so they're experiencing this suffering in their life and they can't do anything to end it. So I think if we were sitting here in this situation with Heman, I think we would have an extreme disapproval over what God is doing to this guy. Like we had an extreme disapproval about what that father did to our friend. And if we were in that situation, what I think we would do is say, man, if I was in charge, right? If I was the one who was handling things, right? If I was in God's position, I would never do this to Heman. I'll never put him in a situation where he's trying to worship, right? He's trying to call out to God and God's just sitting back doing nothing and it's just allowing this pain to happen in his life. And so what do we think to ourselves? If I was in God's position, I would do things differently. And when it comes to talking about disgust, this idea is huge. Because see, the times in our lives that we find ourselves disgusted at God is because we think if we were in his position, we would do things differently. That if we were in his position, we wouldn't be doing the things that God's doing. That's when we feel disgust. Because see, when God is doing the stuff that we would do, then that's fine, right? When God's doing the things that we would also do, we were God, we're not disgusted, we're fine, we're okay going. But when something happens that we wouldn't do, that changes everything. When our two-year-old cousin is severely suffering because he has leukemia and he's about to die 
from this disease that he got when he was two months old. Or our sister is battling with depression because she's had five miscarriages in three years. In that moment, we can start to get angry. In that moment, we can start to become disgusted at God as we wonder, why are you allowing this to happen? And the reason we feel disgusted is because we don't approve of what God is doing. In fact, we extremely disapprove of what God is doing. And so what we do, we find ourselves in situations that we think this. This is often when we find ourselves disgusted at God, when we think to ourselves, we would never do what God does. Right? When that thought enters our mind that we would never do what God does, that's when we're starting to highly question some of the decisions that he's making. Now, that's when we're starting to get to the point that we would say, look, if I was in this position, I wouldn't be making the decisions that he is. And it's there that we start to think about things like this. If I was God, I would never let so many people starve to death in Africa every single day. We think if I was God, I would never allow helpless people to be abused. And even though we'd probably never say this out loud, in those moments, we can even find ourselves thinking, if I was God, I would never send people to hell. And in these moments of our life, when we see what God is doing and we see what we would do in a situation, we can find ourselves being disgusted at God because we extremely disapprove of what he's doing. And we can feel like God is bullying people and that he's torturing people for no good reason. And so we think to ourselves, we would never do what God does. And so as Heman is sitting in the situation where he has an extreme disapproval of what's happening, as he continues to write this psalm, our boy doesn't stop. And he continues to point the finger at God because in his mind, everything that is happening is completely God's fault. And so he just continues to recall all the things that God has done to him. This is what we see in the final verses of this passage. He says, from my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your tears and I'm in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your tears have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me, friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. And that is how human ends this psalm. This is completely different than any psalm that we've looked at so far in this series, isn't it? Because it's not a positive note at the end. Instead, he ends this psalm by blaming God. By telling God he's the reason that he suffered since he was a kid. That God is the reason that he is scared to death because he's afraid that God's going to do something to him. And once again, he tells God that it is his fault why he doesn't have any friends.
And so what we see here is that there's no resolution. There's no appeal to God's unfailing love. There's no, but as for me, I trust in you. Instead, there's just blame. He's just blaming God for what is taking place. And he ends this psalm by telling God that darkness is his closest friend. But you know, as bleak as this psalm ends, I actually love how it wraps up. And I love it because it's so real, isn't it? Man, this is so real because so many times in our life, we understand how human feels in this situation. Because so many times in our life, we just live with this unwanted tension. We live with this unwanted tension of not knowing why God does what he does. We don't know why God causes more people to experience pain than others. We don't know why God allows intense suffering to happen in this world. And we don't know why, even though he has the power to stop it, he chooses not to. I mean, there are so many times in our lives that we feel like the psalmist here. But we have to live with this tension in our lives. This tension between what we want to see and what we actually see. And guys, I've got a master's degree in this stuff. I mean, according to Andy Stanley, I'm a professional Christian because I'm a pastor. But there are still things that, to be honest with you, if you ask me something that God has done or something that God is doing, if you ask me why, I'll say, you know what, I don't know. I mean, I can give you an educated guess, right? I can look at scripture and try to give you a reason for why I think this is happening or what I think points to maybe why he did this. But at the end of the day, I don't know exactly why God is doing what he does. But in those moments that I wrestle with this tension, there's something that I have to remember that helps me tremendously. Something that doesn't always relieve the tension, but it does enable me to live with it. And this is what it is. When I don't know why God is doing something in this world, I have to remember what God has done for this world. When I don't know why God is doing something in this world, I have to remember what God has done for this world. Because when I do that, I remember that God's not disconnected from what's happening here. I mean, oftentimes when we think about a God as a bully or, or punishing people for no good reason, right? We think of him as being someone who's disconnected, who's not a part of our lives. who's this, this absent bystander who's just kind of watching something happen. But what we know is that God has done something for this world by stepping into it. And by experiencing the pain and the suffering of this world that we find ourselves being so disgusted with firsthand. Because when we look at the cross, it shows us. It shows us that God firsthand knows what it's like to be abused. To have people do things to him physically that they shouldn't have been doing. When we look at the cross, 
we understand that God knows firsthand what it means to experience severe suffering and to die unfairly because of it. And as we talked about last week, when we look to the cross, we know that God knows what it's like to experience hell firsthand. Because that's what he has to experience on the cross for us. And even though we deserve eternal punishment because of what we have done, because Jesus went to the cross and experienced hell for us, now anybody who chooses to come to him can avoid it completely. And so what we have to remember, as Scripture tells us, is that God has a deep love for this world. And so in the moments of our life that we have this tension, right, when we don't know why something is happening, we have to remember who God is. And we have to hold on to this idea and this reality that God always has good intentions even when we don't know what those intentions are. We have to know that even when things seem so wrong to us, that God is always doing what is right. And we have to know that if we were in the same position that God was in, that his decisions would be better than ours. And his decisions are better than ours. And so the times of our life where we feel like the psalmist, where we feel like God is torturing us or that God is bullying others, we have to know that he's not. And the reason we know that he's not is because we understand from what scripture teaches us that God's intentions are too good and that the cross is way too big. And so that's what we hold on to. And that doesn't always relieve the tension. We can still experience the tension in our lives, but what that helps us to do is it helps us to live with it. And it also helps us to worship through it. Because what we have to remember is that his intentions is worth your tension. That's what we take away from this. And that's how we can worship God even in the middle of our disgust. We remember this idea that his intention is worth your attention. And as we've looked throughout this entire series, isn't that what we've always seen? This idea that we serve a God who has good intentions. That in the midst of our fear, in the midst of our discouragement, in the midst of our confusion, we can always worship God in our lives because we have a God who has a love that is better than life itself. That the love of our God never fails. And that we can always trust him completely without any conditions because that's who our God is. And so we know that his intentions are good. And so we can still worship him, even when we can't see the big picture, even when we can't be able, even when we can't know why he is doing something. We can still worship him. And I know 
as we wrap up tonight, this is a lot different than any night that we've had so far in this series. There's not a nice little bow that we can kind of put on it and kind of send you away with because that's not how the psalm ends. And if we're honest, oftentimes that's not how our situation ends either. So here's my challenge as we wrap up tonight. My challenge is that we will learn to worship God with unresolved tension in our lives. Because that's exactly what Haman does. Because we can't forget that this is a worship song that he is writing to God. And that for years after this was written, Israel would come together in a room like this and they would sing this song to God as they worshiped him, even with the unresolved tension in their lives. And that's what I want us to do tonight. As we wrestle with these things that we don't know all the answers to, when we find ourselves living in this moment and we don't understand why God is doing something, we can still worship him knowing always that we serve a king with good intentions. And the cross shows us that. So let's do that tonight. And so there's not a lot of songs that you worship to that have the word disgust in it. And so we're not gonna sing a song about disgust, but we are gonna sing a song about Jesus. About a God who is so great that the darkness trembles when they hear his voice. And let's worship that God tonight, even with the tension in our lives, as we remember that his intention is worth your tension. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for tonight. Thank you that you're a God that we can always worship, a God that we can always sing to, even in the moments of our life that we wrestle with thanks. And God, tonight as we walk out of this place and there's still the unresolved questions in our lives, Lord, there's still the idea that you're doing things that we can't exactly explain why, may we be willing to trust you even when we can't see what's going on. And may we allow what we know about you to guide us when we don't know what you're doing. And so that's my prayer tonight, God. As we wrestle with things in our life, Lord, as we wrap up this hard-feeling series, Lord, may we be real about who we are, but may we also be real about who you are. And that you're a God that we can worship because you always have good intentions, even when we can't see them. And I pray this in our great God's name. Amen.